Hello, Mike. Yes. Welcome uh, to the uh, interview here. Uh, very, very uh, glad to have you here. Um, as of right now, we wanted to just do a little bit of an introduction. Uh, ladies and gentlemen who are listening to the podcast, as of right now, our guest for tonight is a living legend from Mount Crashmore, USA. He had infamous feats with Jerry the King Lawler and Hunter Hearst Hemsley, also known as Triple H. He's our favorite garbage man, Duke the Dumpster Strozzi. How you doing today, sir? I am doing well. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you for uh, joining. So, um, you know, at this point, I just want to, you know, introduce you and uh, let us know what you got going on. Well, I'll tell you, we had a show this that was scheduled for this weekend up in Ohio, but it, uh, like a lot of other things, has gotten canceled. Uh, I'm supposed to be up in Circleville, Ohio. With the big time wrestling reunion, but uh, they have had to postpone it, uh, like many, you know, events uh, because of the fears of the coronavirus. But that's what I was doing. But uh, so that's canceled. So we're not we're not doing that uh, convention this weekend. Yeah, that's it. Seems to be something that's everywhere, everywhere, even globally. It's just everything's getting shut down right now. It's like, what the fuck is happening? But uh. I would ask you what your thoughts are on that, but I think we could all say it's kind of shitty that it's happening right now. But I mean, I guess they have to take the precautions to, you know, contain it. But uh, yeah, so um, uh, first things first, uh, we, you know, unfortunately, we started to hear about your show in Ohio not able to happen uh, this weekend, but. Uh, we're glad to have you on here tonight, and we just wanted to really run down a few things and ask you a few questions, you know, about your story, you know, starting off, you know, how how did everything get started for you? Like, who were you trained um, under, and how did uh, that prepare you for the ring? I was actually trained in uh, a gym in Opelika, Florida, by a guy named Bobby Wales. He used to wrestle a little bit down in Florida back in the old championship wrestling from Florida days when it was just changing over to NWA WCW. Um, he worked in a tag team with a guy named Tyree pride. Uh, they were like, I believe they were called the Caribbean connection, but um, yeah, he trained a lot of guys, but he trained uh, in the, the group that I was in. And this was like in 1980. I started probably in 1985, 86 when I was still in high school, but, Bobby Wales also trained uh, Norman Smiley. He was uh, involved in those training sessions quite a bit back in those days. That's where we both kind of broke into wrestling training uh, at the same time. But that's where I broke in. It was Bobby Wales, the Jamaican jammer Bobby Wales. He taught me how to wrestle in the beginning. Have you, uh, Mikey Danger, one of the other co-hosts there, um, are you a – a fan of the product? Have you been watching any of the things like AEW or even WWE now or TNA? Well, I don't watch a whole lot of the products that are being put out as far as those different, um, like WWE or, or AEW. I'll tell you the, it's funny. I actually, I think get my entertainment value these days on paying attention to all the comment sections and, and all the arguing that goes on between all these people over, which is a, a better or worst uh, wrestling federation. 
um, that can be pretty funny to watch and to listen to uh, when the fact of the matter is it's just good to have more places for people to work. That's the that's the wrestler mentality in it. But as far as anything that's really going on right now, I don't I mean, like I don't subscribe to the network. I don't really watch pay-per-views or anything. I just kind of catch highlights on YouTube uh, whenever I can. Do you think that's uh, internet culture, the uh, they call them the keyboard warriors? Do you think that's killing the business a little bit now? Because from what I see, and again, I've never been in the ring aside from one one show. And again, we were just managers for it. Um, so I was never in the ring. So I can't even attest to saying, you know, those guys are good or those guys suck, depending. But do you think when you have that mentality of like the keyboard warrior or somebody who just sits and and or the uh, the, the line ba- uh, lounge chair quarterback those type of things, you think that starts to? I think it changes the business. Uh, the wrestling fan in general has changed quite a bit over the years, uh, and I think it kind of started with the whole era of the kayfabe sheets of Dave Meltzer and different people like that. Um, all of a sudden you have a lot of people that think they're on the inside and, and they're experts uh, on everything wrestling. But I don't think it's killing the business because if you really take a look uh, at the business right now, more people are working in more places every day, uh, especially if you look at the independent scene. Um, people always say WWE is struggling and maybe it is. Uh, you know, its bottom line may not be good, but it's still a great place for wrestlers to work. And it's a lot different from when I worked there. There was no guaranteed contracts. There was no health insurance. There was no benefits like that, that the wrestlers today get to enjoy. Um, And, you know, the WWE has gone through rough spots many, many times in the past. And Vince has always seemed to be able to adjust and come back very strong. And you could probably expect that to be the case again, eventually. Um, And of course, with AEW, like I said, that just broadens the horizon in terms of more places for more wrestlers to work. And that's really the name of the game for everybody. Hey, it's uh, Jay Glow here. Um, So uh, just to broaden on that topic there that you mentioned, do you think – that with all the with the, how the world is today, opposed to how it was back in the early '90s, that's obviously got to have some sort of effect on any type of storylines or you know any type of character anyone wants to build because it may go too far, you know. In this yeah, it definitely has changed in terms of the creativity and how things are are done. Uh, as far as storylines go in the business, but still, it's not. I mean, it's something that can be adjusted to. Uh, you know, I mean, you have things happening in the business now that everybody knows about before they, you know, ever come close to happening. It's just the nature of the beast. Now there's so many people in the know and the speed with which information is getting out there is so much faster, but it's still, I don't think it's a situation where it's going to kill the business. I just think it's different. Um, Uh, They may have to make some adjustments and kind of change the scheme of things uh, as far as how writing is done and maybe someday let kind of the wrestlers take a little bit more of a front seat on their own creative control uh, as far as doing promos and, and different things. But, you know, it's wrestling has always come and gone in in cycles 
and I'm sure it's going to come back at that level. But again, like I said, it's doing great, especially on the independent scene and with new companies like AEW and New Japan and all these companies. It's still a great business to work in. Yeah, and and as the saying goes, history repeats itself. And and I think as well, I have to agree with you. I think you're going to see just the way that it turned out before. I think it's going to turn out that way again, which eventually – you know, they're going to get a little bit more risky with, you know, their storylines and how crazy they get, um, even depending on how it, everything plays out. Now, that's what, exactly what I think is going to happen. So it really just depends on, you know, who's going to step up. And, you know, I know you said you haven't watched the product as much today besides just looking into forums and seeing people argue with each other. But uh, I the people that they're pushing out, just the fans just don't want them. And they want someone who they want in there. But then next thing you know, they're sick of them, you know, after, you know, a month in. And it just, I, I have to 100% agree. I think the independent scene is just bringing such an influx of great talent. And they, I think any independent wrestler that goes to AEW, in my opinion, right now is going to flourish because I feel like they have more freedom there opposed to the WWE with their, you know, with their characters. yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, and and the way the way that wrestlers are getting pushed nowadays is a lot different. Um, there is so much; it seems there's so much fan interaction uh, that sometimes it almost appears as if fans can manipulate who is or is not getting a push. Um, but again, it's just it's a matter of adjustments being made Vince will come around eventually I know I know a lot of people think Vince McMahon is out of touch and maybe he is to a certain extent but if nothing else he's always been able to change the way he does things uh in terms of what the market wants uh and I think that will eventually happen again and of course you know you got Triple H taking over more control of that stuff and Stephanie and you know, maybe they have a younger, hipper outlook. Um, so I think all those things taken into consideration, eventually it's going to come back around. When you were going against Triple H, when you had your match against Triple H, when you knew Triple H, did you say to yourself, man, that guy's going to have the head for the business eventually? Or or was it just the wrestling match? And well, I mean, I knew he had a good head for the business. Um, you could just sit and listen to somebody talk about the business and that group in general, the click back in those days with Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon, Scott Hall and Diesel, Kevin Nash and the one, two, three kid, uh, Sean Waltman, X-Pac, those guys. And of course, Triple H, they, you know, they would sit around and talk about the business, uh, in different ways and a lot more than, uh, a lot of the other wrestlers did as far as I could see, um, you know, they just were always thinking up ideas and things like that. And that's probably a large part of the reason that they seem to have control for so long because they were so invested in it. So in that respect, yeah, I, I believe that you could see early on that triple H had a head for the business. And, uh, and, and that coupled with the fact that, he was not self-destructive. You knew he was never going to uh, destroy himself getting into drugs or alcohol because he never did that stuff. You know, he was there a hundred percent to improve the business and improve his standing in the business. Uh, so yeah, you could see it early on. 
Do you have an example of any of those talks that you've overheard or, or with Triple H being having that mind for the business back then or or was it just, just a lot of times it was just in general they, you know you catch an ear of what they were saying uh or sitting in the group where and another great mind at that time before he really kind of self-destructed for a while was scott hall and you would sit there and listen to how they would view things like they would look at other wrestlers and other and other feuds that they weren't involved in and they would discuss it um, you know, they'd look at like, you know, Owen Hart versus Bret Hart or something, and they would have a totally different spin on it. Um, or they would, or, you know, they would look at anybody like um, Bam Bam Bigelow versus whomever. And uh, they would, the way they would discuss things and Scott Hall, especially he would, he would talk about things and uh, have different outlooks than most people would ever expect or come up with. Uh, he had a great mind. He still has a great mind for the business. Uh, and I think all of that kind of rubbed off and trickled down to the people like, you know, Sean Waltman and Triple H and all those guys. Interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just to kind of, you know, go back here, I just wanted to ask you a question. I believe it's probably the most asked question anyone asks. I mean, what what wanted you to get into wrestling? Like, when did you know that you at first point that, like, wrestling is what I want to do? Um, I, I've oh, told this story it. before, and I will, I will always go back to it, and it's the God's honest truth. Uh, I watched WrestleMania 1. Uh, I remember seeing the buildup on TV, and with Cindy Lauper getting involved, it had all that crossover interest. And the way they hyped the whole Kogan and Mr. T versus uh, Roddy Piper and Paul Orndorff match. And um, it was just something different. And I remember the exact moment it was during, it was actually at the, at the end of that tag team match where I was sitting with my dad. We were in the Miami Beach Convention Center, sitting in the arena, watching it up on a big screen. It was a closed circuit TV screen because they didn't have pay-per-view then. And uh, I remember it was at that moment where I kind of stood up and looked at my dad and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to be a professional wrestler just like that. So, um, you know, I was already wrestling on the high school amateur wrestling team. And eventually uh, I was able to find out where there was a school in South Florida with Bobby Wales and, and uh, go start pursuing that dream. That's awesome. I I mean that's that's a that's a absolutely awesome story to get into there and to going into the training school. How crazy and how horrible was it on like training and whatnot? You hear so many stories about training rooms being like a hundred and some degrees and and other places just it it just takes a toll on you. Like how can you go through the process of like when you were training? Like what were the conditions like? Were you did you see yourself like saying, you know what, I'm not doing this. I'm, I'm going to try something different. No, I had a really easy time, actually. Happened. I came right out of high school amateur wrestling. So I was in already – I was a heavyweight uh, wrestler in high school, and I was already in phenomenal shape. So in that respect, I didn't have to get in shape. and I didn't have to work on that part. I was already in great condition. Um, we worked – we trained in this little warehouse – 
in the middle of Opelaka in down in Miami, Florida, and there was nothing, you know, uh, special about it. It was just a ring in a warehouse, and we would just show up. And Bobby Wales was an awesome trainer because he didn't haze people or scream and yell at people. In fact, the one thing I remember is early on when I locked up, apparently I was too stiff because I didn't understand how to be light in the ring yet. And he, the first thing he said was just calm down, calm down, just relax. Now, now lighten up. And he taught me step by step that way. So it was a really good experience for me. But no, there was nothing about it that I ever hated. In fact, there was a period of time where a lot of the people that were wrestling in our wrestling school had to go up and do some TV spots some some uh, enhancement mas- matches up at the uh, Tampa Sportatorium where they were still fil- filming uh, TV for the uh, – it was then turning into WCW. And uh, the warehouse was empty for like, I don't know, quite a, like two weeks maybe. And uh, nobody was showing up. So I just rolled up a big old piece of carpet and started practicing moves, jumping off the ropes and stuff. And I did that by myself. Actually, I brought a friend of mine, this kid from the neighborhood, and we just jumped and landed stuff and, and until I could learn how to do splashes and elbows and stuff off the ropes because um, that's how much I loved it. Uh, there was never any problem uh, with training. I loved every minute of it. I couldn't get enough of it. And uh that's why it only took me about six months until I had my first match. So, and what's your first match? Well, no, that was in the WWE or WWF back then. But before that, I started wrestling in the eighties. Oh. Um, and my very first match was a guy. There was some dispute over the name. The guy's real name was Teddy, but I think he wrestled as Johnny Blaze. He was a friend of Tyree Pride's, and Tyree Pride was the guy that got me booked. And it was an AWA ICW show. It was after Vern Gagne had sold the AWA, or at least I know that the Savoldis had taken it over. But there were still a lot of the AWA names there, like Larry Zabisco and Nick Bockwinkle and Boris Zukov and uh, Sheik Adnan Al Casey. All those guys were still there. And my very first wrestling match was in the Davy Rodeo Arena in a house show versus this guy, Johnny Blaze, in, uh, in the AWA. And it was pretty amazing, actually. But I was like 18 years old or 19 years old. Wow. Was that still under your moniker? Were you still no, I wasn't even close. I didn't come up with that garbage man gimmick right? until much later down in Florida. Um, at that time, when I first wrestled... Man, there's always been some confusion, but I know it was either my name was either Mean Mike Casey or I was for a little while. I wrestled as the surfer boy, Harry Race, the nephew of Harley Race, which he never knew, which he never knew anything about. Those were my first two gimmicks. And then later on, I would come up with the garbage man, Rocco Gibraltar. And I wrestled as that down in Florida as the garbage man. And that's where I started that gimmick that, uh, Vince McMahon and the WWF would just change the name, but keep the gimmick later on. I hear, I hear a lot of stories early on in the year that the WWE was this giant, WWF at the time was this giant um, pool of creativity. And, and, you know, you walk in the door and they can give you a name and, and, you know, then you're made like, you know, Mark Calloway would be in the undertaker 
I know with Triple H, it was Hunter Hearst Helmsley, and then it became Triple H. And but it just seemed like for you and for a, you know those stories aren't true. You you had your character set. And yeah, and, and that, that was for licensing purposes, you know, so they could own me basically while I was there. Yeah. Mm, and I didn't have a problem with that at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, you could be made pretty easily if they wanted to. Uh, sometimes you had to work for it, though. And sometimes it was a matter of who you were friends with. You know, there's always been politics in the wrestling business. Um, but one thing I learned later on is, you know, at times I wasn't getting the push I thought I deserved, but in reality, the thing I learned and realized later on was I could have done something about that. If I had known more at that time about the business, because I mean, I basically came from wrestling, you know, between one to four times in a month to going up there and wrestling 250 plus two, 300 days a year and uh, swimming with all the big fish up there you know it, it was a, a different experience so i had a lot to learn and uh and, and in a lot of ways i was learning on the fly and trying to learn the business and the politics but yeah they could make you if they wanted to uh they would always give you a try and uh, my first the first try they gave me was with jerry the king lawler and um you know i always enjoyed that feud but it kind of didn't end up the way i wanted it to but it was definitely a good feud and it was great working with jerry the king lawler Yeah, I was going to say, how is uh, Jerry the King Lawler, um, you know, not only in the ring, but be behind the curtain? Was was he very supportive? I mean, he was always game to do anything. And, and uh, with you? you know, he could always get heat uh, like nobody else. He was amazing. And whenever you worked with him, you were guaranteed basically a night off of not taking really many bumps at all in the ring because he did most of the work and got all the heat and made it real easy for the baby face to get over. So I always enjoyed that part of it. It was always very easy to work with him. So even touching back on that now, I wanted to just ask you when being in the back in the locker room and just starting out, was there any mentors that you had or anyone that gave you any advice on, you know, you know, keep your head down kid as, as you hear in all these interviews and, and all these uh, different documentaries, keep your head down kid. And just, you know, just give what they're, uh, take what they're giving you. Like, was there anyone that gave you any insight or any direction? On, well, you, you had know, to be real careful to, with stuff like that. There was always guys that were telling you things that sounded like giving you advice, but, you know, sometimes they were also just kind of trying to work you out of the business. So, so you know, there was another potential spot for them. But, um, you know, over the course of those years, I made friends with people like Bret, Bret Hart and Steve Austin and and uh, other guys like that. And, you know, from time to time, you get advice from people like that. And you always tried to kind of decipher what was good and what worked for you and then not use what didn't work for you. So, yeah, there was always people that were willing to talk to you and try to help you uh, better yourself in the company. So, out of those two names that you said there, what, what was the best? Yeah. Bret Hart messed with me like quite Hart a bit, Hart. actually, which I figured out later. But he, um, you know, he just, uh, oh. he would kind of give me little tips on, 
how to present myself when I was talking to Vince about getting a push or changing, like there was a time when I wanted to, to turn heel and, uh, you know, Brett came, told me that, you know, a good idea would be have a plan in terms of turning heel, have like three guys, you know, they should have, they should have you work with three baby faces to build you up and have an idea of who you want those baby faces to be and give them good ideas for how those matches and how those feuds should go. Uh, and that was a good piece of advice. The only problem was WWF never turned me heel. Uh, they had talked about it, but they never pulled the trigger, but that was a good piece of advice that I had gotten. Well, and on that same retrospect, since you were saying that Stone Cold Steve Austin was another mentor of yours, did he give you any? Uh, yeah, he always tried. He was always or, giving know, me. Well? Uh, he was always giving me truthful advice. I will say that. Um, <clears throat> there was a time when I was, um, I when I left the WWF initially, and uh, there was talk of bringing me back in. Uh, and WCW was also going to take a look at me. And I remember that they both wanted me to come in and they both wanted to take a look at me right around the same time. And my big question was, what should I do? Should I do both or whatever? And Austin gave me a piece of advice that I never took and I should have, but he said, you need to pick one and just go with them because these people in the wrestling business are very vindictive. And if they find out you went to both places, then both of them may just cut ties with you. And that's kind of what happened. I, I did both. I went, I had a tryout with WCW and I came back and tried basically tried out again for WWF. And then I didn't work for either one of them, I think, because I probably made that mistake and I should have taken Austin's advice. That's, I mean, I can only imagine what 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 it could have been. You know, it just seems like. Who do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know how to ask because you wouldn't know if if word got back to either company or, or if there was just somebody that you thought might have talked to somebody else. They they find out everything. Um, no, I don't know specifically in that case, but it was just interesting that. Yeah, especially WWF seemed really, you know, I was talking to Bruce Pritchard and Jim Ross, and they seemed really gung ho on bringing me back in. And then after that situation, it's just like you know they kind of turned a cold shoulder. They didn't want to uh, deal with me, and I, I wasn't getting all the phone calls anymore. So uh, I think I probably played that the wrong way. So going to the WCW when you were trying out there, let's say that that time when you let's say you took. Austin's advice and you just went to WCW and you tried out there and they said, Hey, we're going to sign you. Um, what do you think? Would you went with the It seemed at that time, nobody wanted round? to use the garbage man gimmick. This was during the time when Austin was starting to take off and the game, the kind of cartoonish gimmicks were a thing of the past and they were kind of disappearing and uh, nobody really wanted to, use the garbage man gimmick even though i could have anywhere i went i just couldn't use the name duke the dumpster but uh, they didn't really seem to want that so i had a lot of different ideas um you know and uh it just kind of didn't work out and you know and during that time i kind of lost my 
way. And, you know, uh, when you are in the wrestling business and you all of a sudden abruptly leave, it does something to you mentally sometimes. And um, I had a lot of issues at that time when I left. It kind of drove me off the deep end, so to speak. And um, so I wasn't doing myself any favors at that time. And uh, so it just kind of didn't work out and it, it fizzled out. Uh, what uh, what would you say, I guess at that time then, uh, what do you think the wrestling business taught you? If there was anything that, that the wrestling business taught you, um, what do you think that one thing was? Don't trust anybody <laughs> and be patient. Be patient and don't trust anybody. That's exactly what I was saying. And work hard <laughs> and get yourself over. <laughs> That's right. Because if no one else is, it's got to be you, right? Um, so I I know I keep jumping back and forth here. I'm just so intrigued. And thank you again for, you know, for joining here. Thank you so much. No mind at all. Um, you know, we're gonna, we have some more questions if you don't mind. Um, so going back to when you first started in the WWE, just like anyone would want to know, like, how did you get introduced to him? Like, how – Go to them because I know I from just various documentaries that we've watched that a lot of people they say we sent the tape in we we sent this in or we did that or somebody has like a fucking crazy story that they say you know this is what happened so well as I said before I was already wrestling as the garbage man Rocco Gibraltar down in Florida while I was also finishing college at the University of Miami I got a a bachelor's degree in criminal justice but. As I was finishing college, um, I was preparing to travel the country and try to get a job. And I put together promo pa uh, promo packages with a VHS promo tape, a, a resume, and and uh, eight by ten pictures of the garbage man gimmick. And um, what ended up basically happening, to make a long story short. Um, I was going to drive the country and hand these to all the promoters one at a time because there was still some some territories back then. But what ended up happening is uh, the WWF and many other companies were in Miami for a convention during that time of year, right a couple months after I finished college. It was called the NATP convention. It was a convention of TV executives, and people were there trying to sell uh, their TV shows. And WCW and WWF were both there. And basically what I did is asked a friend who I knew that worked at a local TV station. He was an executive and he got me some credentials and I walked in like I was a TV executive and I walked right up to Vince McMahon and handed him my <laughs> promotional package and talked to him for about 30 or 40 seconds and asked him if he could just give me a call at his earliest convenience. And I looked forward to hearing from him and I walked away and they called me about a week later. Did you see, like, did you see a look on Vince's face? Uh, he realized what was going on pretty quick, but it was funny. An old friend of mine, this guy named Willie Gonzalez down in Florida, I was working the independent scene with. Um, I didn't, I didn't tell many people what I was doing. It just happened over the course of basically like one or two days. I found out they were there and I started putting the plan in motion to go. And I told my friend what I was thinking about doing. And, 
everybody was thought it was kind of crazy for doing it. But this one guy, Willie said, if you go in there and you see Vince McMahon by himself, you better jump on him right away because he will not be alone for long. And he was, he was exactly right. I walked in and there was like this big group of guys like Pat Patterson and the agents and, you know, uh, Stan Lane and all the TV announcers, they were all standing in a big group at the booth for the WWF, but then off to the side, drinking his cup of coffee at 10 a.m. was Vince McMahon all by himself. And I just made a beeline right for him. I walked right up to him. And like I said before, I pitched him for about 45 seconds or so. And and the rest was history. You know, a week later, J.J. Dillon was calling to uh, set me up with a tryout. Yeah, he seemed very impressed. He asked me some questions. You You know, like one of the biggest questions I remember him asking was, he said, you graduated from college. And I said, yes. And he goes, then why do you want to do this? And I just remember, I didn't even miss a beat. I said, Mr. McMahon in life, I I believe that, you know, you have two possible courses. You have the kind of run of the mill course where you go to college and get it some kind of a nine to five job, uh, or you chase your dream. And before I do anything else, I want to chase my dream of being uh, a World Wrestling Federation superstar. And I think that hooked him. It was that line right there that got him. And that's why they called me back. So if I Yeah, I mean, it, it may or may not be the best advice. Sometimes I have real good advice. Sometimes I don't. But I was apparently I was on at that moment. It, it was perfect, and it came out just right. No matter how, no matter how nervous I was at the moment, it seemed to come out just right. Everything worked out perfect. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine you'd be. Sure. Yeah, I didn't even give myself time to fucking talk myself out of it. I just drove up to the building, walked in, walked right up to him, did it, and walked out. And by the time I walked out, I was hyperventilating, like, "Holy shit, I can't believe I just did that." Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Oh man, so I mean, oh, I'm trying to think, like, what, what. <sighs> after you got into the, to the WWF there and he said, Hey, this is what you're going with. And your first view is going to be with Jerry, the King. Like, was there any set plan for you after Jerry? The King well, you like, see back in those days, they never really told you much. You just showed up and, you know, for most people there, they didn't tell you much. You just kind of found out when you, when you got the TV, um, you know, long-term planning was for the top superstars at the time, like the Undertakers and the Bret Hart's and and all the Shawn Michaels and all those guys. Um, they didn't do a lot of planning for me. Uh, and you know, the Jerry the King Lawler, like I said before, that kind of sputtered out. Uh, we didn't even end up getting a pay-per-view out of it. And um, you know, they tried some more things, but I kind of went to opening match mid-card status for quite a while after that until later on the Triple H thing came along. Yeah, the Triple H thing was, it was an interesting situation because I was getting really frustrated because, like I said, when I was on house shows, 
I was opening to mid card status at the most. Um, I was doing a lot of jobs for new heels that were coming into the company and they weren't using me on TV very much when they did, I was losing and then they weren't sending me out on the road very much. So I wasn't making money and I started getting frustrated. And, uh, the initial two year contract was about to run out. And, um, I kind of, made I took a stand actually one night at TV and this is a pretty infamous story but a new guy came in and at the last minute they decided they want me to do the job for him on TV and it just so happened to coincide with when my contract was about to be up so I decided at that moment to take a stand but the guy I was supposed to wrestle that day on TV was the ringmaster a.k.a. Stone Cold Steve Austin. So I ended up refusing to do a job for Steve Austin, and we've laughed about it since, and we were good buddies when we were there. We rode together, and we laughed about it even then. But um, it was just interesting, and uh, I pulled him aside and told him what was going on, that I wasn't going to, you know, it was nothing personal. And he completely understood it, but I took a, I made a stand that day, and express the fact that I wasn't happy. And that's when, and they realized I, I was about to leave the company and they wanted to get me to resign. So, so Vince basically made it sound like they were going to do something big with me. Now they were going to give me a push and they put me in the triple H feud and we got a pay-per-view out of it and stuff. But I mean, I knew I wasn't going to win because he was in the click. But at least I knew it was something more and I was it was getting me back on, you know, the scene as far as getting me regular bookings again. I was on the road again. I was at TVs. I was getting pay-per-view matches out of it. And uh, that's how they got me to re-sign for the, for the one-year rollover. But then as soon as the Triple H thing was over, I kind of went back to what I was doing because I had already re-signed and I didn't have leverage anymore. So they put me back to doing the jobs for guys coming in like the TL hoppers and the mankinds and them. And I just got really kind of frustrated. And in the end, I ended up leaving in the middle of that one year contract. I ended up, they, well, Jerry Briscoe came up to me and told me that Vince said I could go home because, you know, they knew I wasn't happy. And uh, yeah, it was right in the middle of that last year deal. So right at the end of your deal, I believe I did some research and I saw that your last match was against yeah, the yeah, and that kind of pushed me over the edge. I was I was already unstable like mentally about uh, the whole thing, and I was using a lot of drugs, and I was just pissed off at the world. And then we did that match, and I just remember, you know, and uh, Tony Anthony's a great guy and a great worker, and uh, we, we were setting up the match, and he asked me, would it be okay if I put the plunger on your face at the end of the match after I beat you? And I just remember being so like frustrated and disgusted. And I just said, ah, I don't give a shit, man, go ahead and do it. And uh, that was pretty much the end. I knew that was the end. I was just done. I was tired of being there. Uh, it, it wasn't what I had hoped it would be. And uh, I needed to get out of there just to, save myself mentally but yeah he was the last tv match i did so tl hopper is your last match you're pretty much sick of wrestling and you're it's got a sour taste in your mouth at this point what what did you do after after you decided like okay i'm 
give it give it a break on this or taking a break. Well, on I went and worked. I, what did you do? I, after I pretty that? much I disappeared for the most part. I mean, I worked some independent shots. Um, I went back to work with the guys in Florida that I had worked for before I went to the WWF. Um, but I was just really in a bad place, man. People don't realize what that does to a person when you're at the top of the game and you're wrestling for the best company. And, you know, you go out when you do, when you're wrestling, you're going out every night in front of decent crowds. I mean, money was down then, but there were still great crowds and, uh, people underestimate the power that that has over a person. And so when all of a sudden it's gone instantly, that has a very negative effect on, on you. And I kind of spiraled worse and worse into the whole using drugs and drinking alcohol thing for quite a while. And I basically buried my head in the sand down in Florida and got lost for a number of years um, to the point where people often wondered what happened to me. But uh, that's what happened after I left for quite a while. I just kind of disappeared. Now, it's to my understanding, too, that you have a uh, you said you have a degree in criminal justice, but you are also a teacher. Um, yeah. What ended up happening is, right? is after the whole Florida thing, I was living down there on drugs for so long. And most of my family had moved up to Tennessee and um, it got to the po- point where I was living down in Florida and I just couldn't live there anymore. It was, you know, I was so strung out and messed up that. One day I just called my family and they flew me up to Tennessee and I went to rehab for the first time and got clean. And when I was done with rehab, I decided I was going to get my life back. And I went back to college and got a master's degree in special education. And I was a special education teacher for uh, the better part of uh, 12 years and a coach and stuff like that here in Middle Tennessee, which is where I live now. That's that's a that's an amazing that's still an amazing turnaround story. You're able to get out of the wrestling business. There were some negative times there, but for the most part, you took that plane that was going for a, a nosedive. Yeah, I certainly started to build a better life. Um, I think a better life for yourself. One thing though, I didn't take into consideration. I mean, I was working really hard at getting my life back, but um, I wasn't really working hard on being clean and sober as far as the recovery part of it, and uh, eventually it. Uh, came back in the picture and I made the mistake of using drugs again a number of years later. Um, but this time it had gotten so bad. And this was, this was between 2009 is when I relapsed. And uh, by 2013, I was uh, here in middle Tennessee. I was teaching by day and by night I was running the streets, getting drugs so anywhere I could. And I'd become an IV drug user. I was shooting morphine and stuff like that. And it was just crazy. And it all came to a head one day when I ended up getting busted on drug charges. Uh, Cause the people I was running around with, I was buying and selling drugs with. And uh, I caught felonies. I got two felonies out of that. So I lost the teaching job and I lost the coaching job and all these things. Um, and I realized though, when that happened, I seriously had to change and I had to do it the right way. And I really had to work hard on it. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, And as part of my plea deal, I went 
through a very strict and rigorous drug court program here in Warren County, Tennessee. Um, but again, I was willing to do whatever it took. So it wasn't difficult for me to go through the drug court program. And I graduated successfully in 2015. And right, right after I finished that program, they hired me. And uh, that's where I work now. I work for the drug court program here in Warren County, Tennessee. Well, congratulations on that. I mean, and that's actually a, a true story right there of you at least coming out of the ashes there and, and making something of yourself even you get so many chances in life and, and it's just great that you're able to get those opportunities again so that you could make yourself you know a better person and it's basically you know, like that, that, the uh, most uh, portrayals now strict you probation know. you could ever imagine we've got very strict rules we put gps monitors on them we watch everywhere they go we give them tons of drug tests and we really supervise them very strictly but at the same time we offer treatment for substance abuse problems and alcohol and mental health issues. So it's kind of a twofold thing. It's, it's strict supervision along with treatment for their problems. And um, I get to help people every day that are going through the same things that I went through. And I think that goes a long way in keeping me on the straight and narrow now is because I get to work with people and I see people coming in on the beginning of this thing where they're first starting out getting clean. And I remember how it was. I have a constant reminder every day at my job where I came from. So it, it makes it much easier for me to stay clean and do things right now because uh, I get to work with these folks. You don't think, not to go off on a tangent or anything, but um, I guess either the county or the state or the federal on, on that type of le level, like with the country, do you think there's a, a growing, I could either ask uh, a growing drug epidemic or I could ask, is there is there not much being done for people? Well, that maybe okay. <clears throat> there's a very simple question to the first, a uh, very simple answer to the first part of that question. There's a major epidemic and it's only getting worse and it's getting worse um, there's a huge methamphetamine problem. There's a huge prescription drug problem with opiates and benzos, and it's only getting worse. And now add into that fold, there's this new drug coming in that they're bringing in from apparently from China called fentanyl. Fentanyl is this super powerful opioid, uh, opiate narcotic, and it's very cheap to get. And they are cutting it into other drugs and it is causing people to drop dead instantly from overdose. So the game has gotten very serious. Uh, now um, the epidemic is growing. In fact, I was uh, all this week. One of the things I do on the side of my job is me and the local district attorney here. Uh, we go to the local schools and we talk to kids about drugs and I kind of share my story with them in hopes that we'll change some of their lives in the past that they could possibly be going down because yeah, it's not changing. Uh, it's, it's getting worse and uh, it's going to continue to get worse until some changes are made in this country with the laws that regulate different drugs and things of that nature. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I know you're, you said you're in Tennessee, but yeah. we are located here in Pennsylvania 
which is, you know, by the Scranton area um, that everyone compares it to the office. Uh, that's where we're from. And the, the biggest thing here, um, we're usually about 25 years behind with everything, but uh, the big thing in our area is heroin, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Yeah, and again, um, like and, I said, this fentanyl is coming into the picture so now, and they're cutting crazy. heroin with it because it's cheaper and it's stronger. And uh, like I said, more people are dying uh, every day. It's just insane. Um, and yeah, it is. It's all over the country. And and heroin's starting to move into the areas here. It used to be a primarily methamphetamine. That was the biggest problem for a long time. But then it became opiates. And and uh, now we're seeing a lot more heroin, too. So, yeah, it's crazy, uh, the drugs that are out there. And uh, we just try every day to do different things to both save people on the back end of it, but also to teach kids on the front end uh, of all the dangers involved in, in using drugs and drug abuse and things like that. Exactly. Exactly. We try. And so it, like, don't hopefully they, up they grab a hold of some of the happen. things that we try to teach them. Uh, right. So I'm, not to not to switch gears here to to get off that because it's truly an amazing story that you that you had. But um, I go back into the wrestling portion here. I mean, we, me and Ma, M Dangerously here. We always we've been best friends forever. And one thing that's always brought us together has been wrestling. And the things that we look for the most are like the craziest stories, like any like things that that they don't show in the. Uh, the documentaries or on the network or anything like that. Do you have any like crazy stories in the back? Any, like crazy road stories uh, that you've come across? That, like, yeah, I mean, I've always got everybody's always got road stories. Um, and I've told a lot of stories and shared a lot of the stories on my Facebook page. Um, let me see. One that comes to mind. Um, I always tell this one when somebody asks me to share a crazy road story, I always tell this one. Um, Luna Vashon was pretty crazy in real life. Um, she had a huge heart. She was a very kind person, um, but she could get crazy. And I knew Luna and I knew Dave Heath, the uh, gangrel. I knew them from Florida before I went to the WWF. And when I went up to WWF, Luna was already up there working too. She was working with Bam Bam Bigelow. So I had a kind of had a friend up there. So when I first started up there, I decided to, we had a, a loop of a small towns in Canada that we did. And I decided to ride with Luna, who was also riding with Doink the Clown, Ray Apollo at that time, and Dink the Clown, Little Tiger Jackson. So it was me and Luna and the two clowns riding up and down the roads, the back roads of, of uh, Canada. And um, I just remember uh, one day we were checking into a little hotel somewhere like in, who knows, in Nova Scotia somewhere. And uh, at that time, I was rooming with the clowns. We, we would get a two-bed room and get an extra cot. And she would and Luna would room in her own room. And uh, I just remember we were all unloading our stuff in this room one day. We had just checked in. And Dink, the midget clown, Dink, the little guy, Tiger Jackson, came running into the room screaming. And he said, 
He used to call Ray Doink the Clown. He used to call him Popeye. He came running in. He goes, with a really thick uh, French-Canadian accent, he goes, Papa, Papa, Luna, she's killing a man. He said that basically Luna was killing somebody out in the parking lot. So we all ran out in the parking lot. And Luna was standing over this poor guy. He must have been like the town drunk or something. And she was yelling and screaming at him and spitting on him and cussing him. And uh, we were like, what the hell happened? Apparently, this drunk guy walked up to, to Luna. Uh, and with the, way she lo- with the way she looks, you would wonder why he would do this. I guess he was drunk. He walked up to her and asked her for drugs. He said, hey, you got any drugs, baby? And she knocked his ass on the ground and started putting the boots to him, kicking him and spitting on him and yelling and screaming. And I just said, now, mind you, this is like the first tour, one of the first tours I had done with this company. And it was Luna, who I knew from Florida, who was real sweet every time I met her. And she was losing her mind, screaming at this guy. And uh, we thought she was really going to kill him. But uh, that was how I broke into the road in the World Wrestling Federation was with Luna Vachon and all her crazy uh, antics that she used to do. That's that's nuts. I, I can only imagine. I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> what would... Yeah, it's definitely its own kind of a business. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of characters on TV, but man, behind the scenes, there's actually even more strange and crazy and unusual characters that you come across throughout the wrestling business. And it's always been that way. Yeah. That's awesome. That's such a fucking crazy story. Uh, so when you were, you know, competing, whether it be at the WWF or I believe you said. You no, know, I just had a tryout match. I did a dark point, match right? at a TV taping ever, and uh, yeah, and I never there? went back and worked there. I mean, I went and talked to Kevin Sullivan a couple of times with some ideas. I was talking to J.J. Dillon, but I just don't think Bischoff or, you know, any of powers that be were interested in me at that time. Okay, so so I guess I mean this could be even back when you first started in the business um, down in Florida, or you know in the WWF. Who who would you say is like your favorite competitor that you worked with? There's a, that, you know at that level there was a lot of great wrestlers. You felt like um, you put on your best. Match. One of the guys I worked with, and again I often tell this story and people can't believe it, but that you would never expect. Um, to be, I don't want to say not to be a great worker because he is a great worker. Um, the guy, um, Mark Canterbury, he wrestled as Henry Godwin, the hog farmer. Um, he was amazing and uh, we had some amazing matches. It always seemed like we just really meshed well together when we wrestled. Um, and I remember I was practically, I would practically beg Vince McMahon to put me in a feud with him. But uh, Vince never would. But uh, he was great to wrestle with. But then I had guys I regularly wrestled, like um, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, who was Pierre from the Quebecers. Now he's PCO. He's always been a great wrestler. Uh, Savio Vega was a great wrestler. Wrestling Steve Austin was funny and fun, even though I didn't get to do it many times. Um, You know, these were all great, great guys to work with. 
on that same, uh, I guess, plane, who was probably the biggest asshole you would say if you want to if you want to not throw any names under the bus i get you but oh, i don't I give like, a shit i always tell the truth know, um that there'd be somebody I, that we can this has become pretty infamous now it's almost become like a running <laughs> gag on my social media but fucking king kong bundy man was fucking miserable oh my god dude he was such a pain in the ass to work with and he was so stiff um god he would just drop things on you and he had no concept of you know pulling his weight and not landing on you. He would drop knees on your face and stuff like that. He was just, he was miserable. And me, me and him didn't get along very well. And obviously he's no longer with us. And, you know, people always say, I hate to speak ill of the dead, but, you know, he was just a jerk when I worked with him. And, uh, you know, and I always said that to him. I told him right to his face. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't sugarcoat anything. I, I didn't beat around the bush. I always told him he was, I thought he was a dick. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the one. <laughs> you know, it's it's so funny that you say that because me and uh, Mikey here, we've, we've done shows. Uh, there was a local promoter that came to from New Jersey to our area, and I had the pleasure of talking bullshit with him a lot, and you know, working some of his shows, he'd say, Hey, do you want to be a manager? Do you want to do, you know, announcing and whatnot? And I was like, you know, me being the fucking Mark that I am, I'm like, absolutely. Let me do that. So I went and I was in the back locker room and I got to meet a couple guys. I got to meet honky tonk, man. He was a awesome dude to me. Um, the Patriot was awesome. Brutus of our beefcake actually helped me with my uh, senior project for high school uh, and I thought that was fucking awesome too. But out of all the guys that I met, the biggest asshole that I've met was King Kong Bundy. He was just a dick to everybody. He, even to a kid, I think I was 16 at the time. He was just like, get the fuck out of my way. Kid. Yeah. That just sums like, him up perfectly. He was always like this cantankerous, like, you're, you're like pissed off, pissed off guy in the back. And yeah, he, he, he would always act that way. Uh, at least for the most part. So, yeah, I think he kind of turned off a lot of people in that respect. <laughs> yeah, he definitely, you know, turned me off. I mean, I don't want to say he turned me on because, you know, that's, I don't go that way. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's just – it's crazy. And I and I just – I'll never forget it because he was just, just so bitter. And just, I remember him telling the guy that the promoter who I knew – he kept saying, like, give me my fucking money. Let me get out of here. And that's all he kept saying. He just he got his money and he drove away. Um, but, yeah, he was just he wasn't fun to be. Around. And it's just it's so funny that you say that because it's it's something that I actually gotten to uh, interact with. that wasn't the nicest guy. But now talking about going for an asshole, uh, who would you say in the back was like the nicest person that you got to interact with that maybe became your right hand man or somebody that, you know, just always, if you were having a bad day and you were around him, or maybe let's say your match didn't go the way you planned. That this Steve Austin was the funniest son of a bitch I ever met in my life. Like we that, used to you know I mean? have great times together, and we were always laughing and having fun, uh, no matter what. We we didn't take things too seriously. Um, you know, we were not bitter individual. You know, bitter over the business like other people were, and. Uh, we always had fun. So he was definitely, I would say, the one that uh, I hung with quite a bit and uh, got along with the most. Uh, 
Do you have any? Funny oh Lord! Yeah, I got one, and I'll tell you only because we told it on his podcast. Uh, I was on his podcast probably last year sometime, and uh, he started telling the story. So I know it's okay to tell, but we were on a flight going over to Kuwait. Uh, we were going to Kuwait to do some shows, and uh, you know, drugs and alcohol are illegal over there in the Middle East. And uh, so I took it upon myself to bring a very special concoction or drug called GHB, gamma hydroxide butyrate. It's like, uh, well, they used to call it the date rape drug, but, you know, it was uh, this clear liquid. And uh, if you took just the right amount, you got pretty messed up. And um, I basically smuggled it over there in... uh, I bought some scope bottles of clear scope mouthwash and poured it out and just poured this GHB in there. But anyway, on the flight over stone cold, Steve Austin apparently took too much GHB and he started to kind of freak out on the plane. And he had, to, uh, he had to walk laps up and down the aisles on this plane flying overseas to Kuwait. Cause he was freaking out thinking he was going to die from GHB. And he just kept saying, Duke, what am I going to do? Duke, what am I going to do? And I just looked at him. I said, here, take some of these pills. I was going to give him some somas. And he goes, what the hell are you talking about? Take somas. I feel like I'm going to die. And uh, we've always laughed about that story because, uh, as he says, he went too deep in. And uh, it was just always funny. We were getting into shit like that all the time. And I was always just like, "Ah, I don't care who gives a shit. I was always wanting to party and have a good time. And, yeah, we had some fun times, that's for sure. How was the uh, how was it over in Kuwait? I mean, I've never been there personally, but like oh, those overseas tours that you've been to, I mean, did they? Yeah, did Kuwait was. I mean, they were real nice to us. This was this was like in nineteen ninety five, I think. Uh, so you know, the memory of the first Gulf War was still uh, fresh in their minds. So, so they loved us. People from America in general, they loved us. Uh, so it was fun, you know, and they took really good care of us. Uh, but, um, you know, the, just there were road trips like that going over to Europe and stuff that were pretty rough. Um, you had to be able to handle the life on the road or it could eat you alive. So, yeah, there were difficult times, too. All right. Um- I I know I have a few other questions uh, to to ask here. There's one that I that, that was the first one in my mind that I wanted to ask you. Uh, what is the whether it be you or somebody else that did it? What is the the biggest rib that you pulled on someone or someone maybe pulled on you or the one that you noticed? Well, I pulled a rib that I felt really bad about because I uh, I screwed up, made a mistake. But we were in uh, we were actually in Kuwait. It was during that same trip. And we were in this locker room and they gave us like fruit baskets and stuff to eat while we were there. So we're all kind of sitting back there. And uh, I just remember everybody had wrestled. And during that time, uh, PJ Walker, just incredible. He was wrestling as the Portuguese man of war. And he had this yellow, hideous yellow mask. And uh, I just remember we're sitting in the locker room in, in Kuwait and, most of the people had wrestled and I guess PJ was done and he taking his mask off and it was sitting there and the British Bulldog was sitting right next to me, Davy Boy Smith. And he looked at me 
He didn't say a word. He just looked at me. He looked at the mask and he just nodded his head. So I said, oh, yeah, I knew what he wanted me to do. So I grabbed the mask and I just actually what I did is I didn't even touch the mask. I just grabbed one of the fruit baskets and put it right perfectly on top of the mask on the table. So you couldn't see it. That's all I did. Right. Well, I totally forgot that I had done that. And PJ Walker, just incredible. The Portuguese man of war. He never sold it. He never said a word. He didn't show that he was pissed off because somebody took his mask. So I didn't realize till the next day, but I forgot that I hid his mask. And apparently somebody coming into that locker room later in the evening to clean up or whatever they did, they found it and stole it. They took the mask. So PJ, the Portuguese man of war who wrestles with a yellow mask only had one mask. So he couldn't wrestle. Uh, they, I don't, I don't remember what they did, but uh, I almost like got in a fight with Shawn Michaels over that. Cause he started basically, you know, the, the Davy boy stooged me off. He told Shawn Michaels that I had done it. And of course I had to deny it. That felt horrible, but I had to kind of save face. So I told Shawn Michaels to keep my fucking name out of his mouth. And we had an altercation, uh, talking back and forth, but he, you know, he just, uh, he, it was just a bad scene and I felt really bad about it. I tried to never do uh, ribs that hurt people or cost them money. And in that case, I took part of his gimmick and I totally forgot that I had done it. And uh, man, I felt horrible about it. And it wasn't until many, many years later here recently that I actually told that story. And I told, I mean, I think PJ knew that I took it, but I told him, I, I verified that, yes, it was true. I was the one that took his mask. Oh, he's cool about it now. He's like, yeah, the only problem was uh, that was the only mask I had. So he couldn't wrestle like, for say? a couple of days. So again, I, 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 that little harmless, what I thought was a harmless joke ended up costing, I mean, he still got paid, but it ended up messing up the show to a certain extent because the Portuguese man of war was supposed to be there and he couldn't wrestle. So. I mean, the only other, like, one of the last questions I'd like to talk about, and if you want to talk about it too, great, would be the uh, the gimmick battle royal. I don't know if you'd want to talk about that when you had your WrestleMania moment there. Um, what did you think? Like, how did that come to fruition? And, and then what happens? Do they kind of pay for your travel out there? And, and how? Did you yeah, again, I'd left the WWF for a while, and I went give, back to Florida, and I was like working with this little, time, this small wrestling company down in Florida. And I had, by that time, I got a ring, and I was training some people a little bit. But again, I was still on drugs and drinking a lot of alcohol, so I really was in no condition to even really be working in the business very much. But uh, this guy down in Florida told me about the – WrestleMania plans that year for the gimmick battle Royal and that I needed to get in touch with them. So I got in touch with Bruce Pritchard and asked him if there was a spot and he told me there was, and they flew me up there for the show. And I was in the gimmick battle Royal, which was interesting. It was a very short moment. Basically you got to walk down this long ass ramp in the Astrodome in front of 65,000 people and throw a few punches and kicks and then doink the clown clothesline me out of the ring backwards. But, the thing about I remember the most about that match was I was in no condition to wrestle. I was so strung out on drugs that I was taking uh, I was going to a methadone clinic down in Florida at the time 
And uh, I had to get enough methadone from this clinic to take with me over the weekend. Uh, and I barely made it last long enough because if I had run out, I would have gotten sick with withdrawal symptoms and stuff. And uh, so my WrestleMania moment wasn't the greatest WrestleMania moment. Um, I just basically got myself there, got in the ring a little bit and got a paycheck and then got the hell out of there. I didn't really interact with a lot of people. I mean, I said hi to a few people, but I kind of hid because I was ashamed uh, of where I was at that point. Um but I will say it was pretty amazing walking out in front of that many people, man. 65,000 is a lot of people. Yeah, only because you couldn't throw him over the top rope because his knees were so bad. So he had to win it. And then, of course, Slaughter came in and did the big, big, uh, you know, schmoz deal where he beat up Sheik and threw him out under the bottom rope and he got all the glory. But, yeah, that's why Sheik won because he couldn't go over the top rope. great <laughs> um so one thing i actually wanted to ask you this is a big ah. of, uh my dad big daddy glow uh which you wanted me to give you a shout out and call you uh, drowsy uh not a problem <laughs> but uh he told me he's like if you ask if you ask mike if you don't mind me saying your first name mike um any any questions he's like ask him about a click story and i know i mean the click i mean if you're a wrestling fan you know who the click is but do you have like a, a click story you want to? Yeah, the us? click. Like, was, like, the, that was an interesting maybe, bunch of guys. <clears throat> you know, they had a lot of power in those days, and uh, you know, they were obviously all good friends with each other, and they were kind of taking care of each other and getting all the good spots. And um, you know, but uh, they were pretty arrogant as a group. But a lot of times, individually, they were nice guys, and I got along with uh, most all of them most of the time. You know, I mean. Sometimes some of them could be pricks, but I mean, you could say that for anybody in the wrestling business. But during those days, I just remember when I was still kind of early in the game, um, I started not long after WrestleMania 10. And I just remember WrestleMania 11 comes along. And that was the year that the click started taking over. And it went from like... Lex Luger being semi-main event, and it was like uh, maybe it was Bret Hart and Owen Hart had a match and some other stuff was going on. But those were all the main event matches. Of course, there was the ladder match with Shawn Michaels and, and, and Razor Ramon right in the middle of the card. But um, other people, for the most part, had the semi-main and main event matches. By WrestleMania 11, the card was stacked all the way up through the main event with click members. And um, I just remember hearing Lex Luger kind of half complain under his breath about how, how can you go from being, you know, semi-main event singles match to opening match in a tag team? I think it was him and Davey or something. They had a tag match that year, I, I believe. And um, I don't know if you remember the old WrestleMania song. It used to go like, I'll, I'll try my best to sing it, but it would go, whoa, whoa, WrestleMania. That was the song that would come. And they would come into the show with it, right? Well, I just remember sitting in this locker room, and I still am relatively new to this company, and I'm sitting right in the middle of, like, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Shawn Michaels, and all these guys. I don't know if – I don't think Hunter was there yet. 
But uh, I sat there and I just started singing, whoa, whoa, clickamania. And all the boys popped except the click. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, man, maybe I just made a horrible career move. And, uh, but yeah, that was the click story yeah, that I always like to tell because it's the funniest. Um, I just didn't give a shit. If I thought you were an asshole, I told you you were an asshole. And uh, they knew that, especially at that moment. Yeah, Clickomania. Clickomania. That's fucking. Okay. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's funny that that you were just singing there a little bit. You know, I, I get on these kicks. Uh, I listen to different types of music, but music. Um, uh, you, you know, I, I like bands like I like Alice in Chains. I like old Linkin Park stuff. Um, lately, I find myself uh, getting into Five Finger Death Punch. Um, you know, I just music to get you fired up in the gym. Uh, cause I've got back into the gym and lifting weights over the last four or five years. I've really gotten back into trying to get myself back into shape and, uh, any kind of music to get you fired up for the gym is always good in my book. Right now it is. Yeah. That's currently, uh, doing anything. Yeah, so absolutely. Would you, say is your you know, rage band, against the machine, but I also like rap music, you know, the old, um, Notorious B.I.G., Ice Cube, Snoop Doggy Dog, those we used to listen to that stuff on the road. Um, I remember listening to, to Rage Against the Machine with Austin, and um, he always loved that music. You know, it got us fired up, and he ended up basically using um, a Rage Against the Machine song. Uh, it was Bulls on Parade as the template for his uh, entrance music as Stone Cold Steve Austin. If you listen to that Bulls on Parade, that's where he got it from. No shit. Yeah, that's where it came from. Okay, we yeah, used to ride up and down the roads. And right back then it was CDs. We would listen yeah, to the thinking, Rage Against shit, the Machine yeah, right. CD over and over and over again. No, there wasn't cassettes. They were kind of they were kind of phasing out at that time. Not cassettes? <laughs> Oh yeah, right. Uh, I loved. I I could agree with you. I love uh, Rage Against the <laughs> Machine and uh, like System of a Down and all those types of bands. So I mean, you got some great taste in music, sir. And uh, I mean, I mean, I I guess we could really end the podcast here. I mean, I wanted to ask you if you wanted to, you know, promote anything or you know, add anything in, or maybe your Twitter handle. Yeah, or... even, even yeah I will tell you, I right before you, a guy's actually called or, you know, me the vendor or my promoter or vendor for like the uh, show I was supposed to do this weekend called me, and she said they've rescheduled it for April the 18th in Circleville, Ohio. It is the big time wrestling reunion. There's a lot of great wrestlers there, a lot of legends. Uh, the Four Horsemen are there. Uh, Road Warrior Animal, Tatanka. Uh, man, there's just a lot of guys. Too many names to name. It's a really huge deal. Uh, hopefully, it will go on, on in April, on April 18th, and it won't get shut down by this stupid uh, coronavirus. But um, that's when it is rescheduled for, and I'll be appearing there. With Shadow Shadow Entertainment, uh, that's the company that's bringing me and a lot of the other guys. And I, I think I'm also coming in with Sam Houston, if you remember him. He was 
a great wrestler back in the day throughout Texas and into the into Florida and other territories. So yeah, it's going to be a fun event. Hopefully, hopefully it will go off this time and not get canceled. Uh, but it's April 18th in Circleville. They call it Roundtown, Ohio. Yeah, and that's basically what I'm doing right now. I mean, I do some shows sometimes. I'm not wrestling anymore because I had an issue with my leg. Um, and then what's your and uh, I had to have surgery, but um, I'm still doing appearances where we do meet and greets and autograph sessions and stuff like that. And I'm on social media. You know, my private Facebook page is what kind of started all this. It took off. Uh, it's just under simply Mike Drosy. And then I have a Facebook fan page for Duke the Dumpster Official. I have an Instagram, which is Duke the Dumpster Official. And I have a Twitter page, which is the real Duke Drosy. Uh, those are all my social media. You can go on there and you can go back through all the stories I've ever written. There's tons of road stories on my private Facebook account under Mike Drosy. If you go back and it's all public. So anybody can go in and look at it or you can friend request me. I, and I'll, a lot of times I, I've only got a few spots left. I'm up at that 5,000 max. It seems all the time, but um if I don't accept a friend request, uh, it's just because I'm too close to 5,000. And you can uh, always read the stories, though. They're always uh, – I, I post them publicly so everybody can read that stuff. Well, Mike, thank guys, you so I appreciate you having me on your show. show. Thanks a lot. And whatever, and we really appreciate your time. See you guys. We'd love to have